Yeah, I, I also like how in Mimic, we're all supposed to believe that people would be uh, okay with men in trench coats playing the spoons. Like, <laughs> like, oh, I'm so scared by that thing. Oh, no, you're just a man in a trench coat with playing the spoons like he's like backwoods <laughs> Alabama or whatever. <laughs> if I was walking down the street and a man had uh, was playing the spoons with a big trench coat, I'd be like, yeah, he's, he's a cockroach. Like, he's going to murder me. Hello and welcome to Page and Screen. Um, we read the book, we watch the movie, and we offer our unwarranted opinion. My name is Calvin De Silva, and this is a Lost Samurai Jack episode that no one asked for. Hi, uh, I'm Doug, and uh, and I was actually the one who killed him. Hi, I'm Jesse, and maybe goodness is make-believe. Hi, I'm Ashton, and this might be the worst samurai I've ever heard of. Uh, on this episode, we are discussing In a Grove, a short story written by Ryunosuke Akadagawa and published in 1922. And its adaptation, Rashomon, a film directed by Akira Kurosawa and released in 1950. In a Grove takes place during an unspecified time in feudal Japan. It is told through eyewitness testimonies to a high court. The testimonies recount the events of a crime that takes place in a bamboo grove. The first account is from a woodcutter who finds the body of a samurai who has died of a sword stroke to the chest and reports trampled leaves surrounding the body that show a struggle took place. But otherwise, there is no significant evidence as to what actually happened. No weapons nearby and no horses, only a single piece of rope, a comb, and a lot of blood. Uh, the next account is delivered by a Buddhist priest who says that he met the man um, on the road and he saw that he was accompanied by a woman on horseback. The man was carrying a sword, a bow, and a black quiver. All of these, along with the woman's horse, a tall, short-maned palomino, were missing when the woodcutter discovered the body. The next person to testify is a bounty hunter. He has captured an infamous criminal named Tajimaru. Tajimaru was injured when thrown from a horse, and he was carrying a bow and a black quiver, which did not belong to him. This proves that Tajimaru was the perpetrator. Tajimaru was not carrying the dead man's sword, however. The next testimony is from an old woman who identifies herself as the mother of the missing girl. Her daughter is a beautiful, strong-willed 19-year-old named Masago, married to a man named Kanazawa no Takahiro, a 26-year-old samurai from Wakasa. Her daughter, she says, has never been with a man other than Takahiro. She begs the police to find her daughter and bursts into tears. The next testimony is the confession of Tajimaru. He says that he met them on the road in the forest and upon first seeing Masago, decided that he was going to rape her. In order to rape Masago unhindered, he separates the couple by luring Takahiro into the woods with the promise of buried treasure. He then ties him up and gags him and fetches Masago. When Masago sees her husband tied to the tree, she pulls a dagger out and tries to stab Tajimaru, but he knocks the knife out of her hand and rapes her. Originally, he has no intention of killing the man, but after he rapes her, he claims that she begs him to either kill her husband or kill himself because she cannot live if two men knew of her shame. Uh, she claims that she will then leave with the last man standing. 
Tashimaru did not wish to kill Takahiro in a cowardly manner, so he untied him and they have a sword fight. During the duel, Masago flees. Tashimaru kills the samurai and takes his sword, as well as his bow and quiver, and the woman's horse. He says that he sold the sword before he was captured by the bounty hunter. The second to last account is that of Masago. According to her, after the rape, Tajimaru fled and her husband, still tied to the tree, looked at her with great disdain. She was ashamed that she had been raped and no longer wished to live, but she wanted him to die with her. He agreed, or so she believed, but she cannot be for certain because his mouth was still gagged. She plunges her dagger into his chest and then runs into the forest, whereupon she attempts to commit suicide numerous times, but her spirit was too strong to die. At the end of her confession, she bursts into tears. The final account comes from the samurai himself, as his ghost speaks through a spirit medium. The ghost says that after the rape, Tajumaru persuaded Masago to leave her husband and become his own wife which she agreed to do under one condition. He would have to kill Takahiro. Tajumaru became enraged at the suggestion, kicking her to the ground and asked Takahiro if he should kill the dishonorable woman. Upon hearing this, Masago fled into the forest. Tajumaru then cuts Takahiro's bonds and runs away. Takahiro is distraught and in tears after these events. He picks up Masago's fallen dagger and kills himself. Shortly before he dies, he senses someone creep up to him and steal the dagger from his chest. And that's the end of the story. Um, what did everyone think? I uh, I really liked it. Um, it was interesting because uh, you're like playing the game uh, while you're reading it of who do you think is telling the truth? What do you think the truth actually is? So I really do enjoy those types of stories. The comment I made about him being the worst samurai is I do laugh at the fact that he just trusts that this guy isn't up to any good and then gets killed <laughs> because of it. This uh, this short story tickled my brain a bit because when I started getting into it, I was like, oh, okay, this is, I kind of treated it like a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing where, okay, well, everything's going to get revealed by the end, but it doesn't. All we know is that um, the samurai is dead and you have all these conflicting reports so i actually i reread it about two more times because i thought am i missing something here but i kind of deduced maybe the point of this story was uh when there's so many lies around the truth just eventually gets lost i so yeah i i did enjoy it i thought it was an interesting little short story but it just really confused me so it took me about 22 minutes to read so it wasn't a long read uh but after I finished reading it, I had to like go back and reread it. And I actually ended up reading, reading, rereading it another time. And I just came to the conclusion that one, testimony is always fraught with, uh, with lies. And then two, that everybody lies. What Jesse just said, there, there's a truth in there somewhere that kind of like leads you to what actually happened. But I, I, I don't think that uh, it's clear. And, and I couldn't figure it out. I, I couldn't, I wasn't reading it and thinking, aha, this is what happened, right? And I was never able to get there. So that's exactly how I felt. I, I thought it was a, a great story. It felt almost like a very old story. You know, like it felt like it was almost like a folk tale from like the medieval era. Like it felt like it was written in the era that was set. 
but it's fairly modern and it's considered a modernist story. The The hardest thing that I had to get over um, or the hardest thing that I had to swallow was just the nature of the rape and how they treat rape in this story. It's just deplorable and it's so hard to like really wrap my head around because they victimize this woman throughout the entire story no one treats her with any sort of sympathy or compassion or in any sort of way and neither does she herself you know like she treats herself with shame everyone treats her with shame because she was raped by someone that was the hardest part for me to to swallow um but barring that it is a i thought a very interesting story in the way that it twists your perceptions of what a detective or a mystery story is supposed to look like. It's interesting. I think I, when I finished reading the story, I thought that the samurai's version of the tale is the right one. I thought that like, well, he's dead. Um, So I'm assuming that the tale that he's telling is the truth because it's like, why would he lie at this point? But, you know, when we get to the movie, we'll realize that that's not necessarily true. And it kind of opens up more analysis. Like I said, I thought it was a, a really interesting story, totally unlike any murder mystery story that I've read. It really does have you question what it means to tell the truth or the nature of deception of human deception and the the untrustworthy nature of eyewitness accounts i i kind of agree i i was with calvin i kind of like to me it was like oh yeah the samurai's ghost is telling this true story i felt that way as well but then it, then of course they throw in that little added extra intrigue or mystery of like who is the silhouette that pulled the knife out of his chest then and you're like okay well wait who is that and then it ends there's a lot of um discrepancies in the stories too other than that too like when you were talking about the synopsis that it was like a slash wound from sword but obviously the samurai is talking about how he was stabbed and it's not a slash wound. So there's lots of interesting little story bits that are like, wait, that doesn't quite connect. Right. Like, and there, and there's a ton of it. If you like go back and read every detail that every person gives, it's slightly different. I was a bit biased against the, the spirit mediums. It reminds me of like Teresa Caputo and long Island medium where they do cold reading and stuff like that. So I yeah. like, in my mind, I kind of just like, okay, well, Maybe uh, the spirit medium just kind of like picked up hints and bits of the clues and pieced together uh, what, you know, what they probably thought happened. But um, I didn't really take into account like the actual spiritual nature of it. Like, oh, it could actually be his spirit talking through her. But for some reason, I just didn't really believe the uh, the spirit medium story. Thinking about it. So the first testimonies are the most objectively true testimonies because there's no shame involved. And I think that was the overriding theme of this entire film, not film, well, both the film and this. I think there's an overriding theme of, of shame. And uh, you kind of touched on it a little bit with the old, I don't want to say Eastern values because it's also Western values. So just old world values of like how women uh, are perceived, especially in the terms of being raped when it comes to like being, being objects and things like that. But beyond that, so the first, testimonies the the old lady who's the mother uh the woodcutter and the bounty hunter those three in my mind are the objective and they lay out the scene and then uh you go through and you hear um the bandit you hear the woman and then you hear the spirit beat him but if you break down the the three of them they're all drastically different and they all end with they kill the person Mm. so that's where that comes from but each of those three stories that they tell all contradict one factual portion 
of what the crime scene and like the spirit medium, like, like one, just like what Jesse said in my brain, I also don't trust spirit mediums in general, but beyond that, I, I can say to myself, this is a, a story. Let's assume that the spirit medium is real and that the husband is being sent, you know, mystically through, through the spirit medium. He could still lie as a spirit medium because he felt shame. And, and I think I think that's why everybody lied. I think there was a shameful portion that they all, for instance, in the testimony of the, the woodcutter or whatever, the, the guy who finds them, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said something like the grass was like crushed or the leaves were crushed around this. And the, and the bandit, he said that in this pursuing fight, they had destroyed the, the surrounding grove or whatever, right? So, so in my mind, there was a fight. And... Like the bandit was truthful, but he probably wasn't really truthful. And like, it, so, so that's why this is such an interesting, because at first I was like, what the hell happened? And what the hell am I reading to, okay, well, maybe this is what happened. Right. And so like, with all that in mind, that's where I'm coming from this. And, and I thought, of, I thought it was a good book. It, it grew on me is what I, what I'm trying to say. It, it like, it's interesting. Cause I, I, like, I agree with Jesse, the, the notion of spirit mediums is always kind of been um iffy to me but but like i said it's that this like old world folkloric aspect to it where i'm like okay well discount that this is supposed to be kind of like a fable or like a morality tale but then it ends in such an ambiguous way where it's like i don't know where the morality is here or i don't know what the lesson was i was supposed to learn from this is it just that like people lie i also think that it's super interesting that they all lie but they're not lying to prove their innocence in fact they all admit to killing him they're lying to accomplish something on a much deeper level than just saying that you're innocent of this crime and i think that's so unlike any other murder mystery in that way it's not that these people are lying to say i didn't kill him they're lying to say i killed him this is why because it was an honorable thing to do because it was a way for me to protect my shame or i think like that's what was really interesting about it it could just reminds me of like Macbeth, where when they talk to the witches one of the lines that's dropped in that is that uh, you don't believe witches, even if, even if they tell you, like, like you always take everything they say as a, I just, I kind of, t- uh, that's kind of my brain as well. It's, it was floating around in my brain and thinking, well, obviously the spirit medium, that's the problem too, is if you're talking to the dead, like, why don't you just spill the beans and be like, yeah, here, let me tell you what's happening, guys. But it's it's all based on on honor and shame. Like it's, my, my only problem is that I could figure out what the bandit's honor and shame story was and why he would lie. But I can't figure out about the, the woman and the man. That's actually what bothers me about the story is I, I'm like sitting around thinking, I don't get, I almost feel like I misread something. And I, that's why I went back. I'm like, okay, I obviously missed something because I don't understand that the shame honor story that causes someone to lie about, uh, about killing somebody else. Like I understand it for the, for the bandit, but not for the other two. And, and, and it almost makes me shrug my shoulders being like what, like, what the heck? Like, what am I supposed to be doing here? So you think that the honor for the bandit is that he killed this man in a duel and he didn't just murder him. He killed him honorably, kind of. He says he clashes blades with him 27 times. Like he's trumping up this story like that was a huge sword fight. Sorry, I actually do think that the, the bandit killed him and I think he killed him dishonorably. 
because he was he was so he was so focused on being like I we we crossed blades 23 times and we I was being super honorable about it and I think the samurai attacked or at least tried to tried to fight him off but then it just doesn't make sense with the woman's story because in her story that you know it was this thing where she was raped and then the bandit runs away and then she's so overcome by her shame that she tries to convince her husband that they should die together and if the bandit did just kill this guy honorably then why would she construct this tale of her husband still being alive and that she then needed to kill him to preserve her her honor or like yeah so i was thinking about this as well i that thought could have had occurred to me i think that something about the story doesn't line up i, I think the woman and the bandit were in cahoots beforehand and probably and possibly still in cahoots afterwards i think she may have even given him the, the death stroke but yeah See that's what that's what it's bothering me because I don't I don't understand it like it's a there's a crucial piece of the puzzle that's that's missing, and I I don't like that when I'm reading like mystery novels at the end of it it's so ambiguous and then I think that the the samurai lied like after death lied because his wife was in love with another man. And- yeah, I was gonna say that theory makes sense to me because it because then that explains why the samurai's lying. Because he saw that his wife was in cahoots with this bandit and that he was dishonored in the fact that his wife was was now with this other man and that they had conspired to kill him. And instead of owning up to the fact that his wife did all this, he he confesses that he kills himself instead. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I totally understand what you mean. It is, it, it is I think, a, a story that can be pretty frustrating there really isn't a clear answer here. And I think Rashomon tries to give us a clearer answer, but it's still... Also, the ending of the story was very confusing in that I could not figure out who took that dagger. In the samurai story, he confesses that he kills himself using his wife's dagger as the darkness is falling over him and he's, he's starting to die. He says that someone pulled the dagger from his heart. And at first I thought that was someone who was, I thought that was someone who was consoling him. But now I think like, oh, like it was someone who was stealing the dagger. It was the priest. Yeah. Or, or the woodcutter. Right. But like, here's the thing. If it was the woodcutter who pulled the the dagger out of his body, because the woodcutter is the person who found the body, then that would mean that the woodcutter is also lying because the woodcutter said that he died of a sword stroke. And the blood was dried when he got there. Right. I think everybody might be lying as well. In, in one of the stories, I can't remember it. The Buddhist monk says that there are twenty arrows, but the but in uh, later in later accounts, they only list seventeen arrows. Uh, or at least somebody says that there was only seventeen arrows. The old woman, who's the mother, she probably lies. I don't know. They're, they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> just for the just for the heck of it. <laughs> but I don't I, know. I honestly think that there might be a translation things and. That, that's the problem with, with things like this. There's more to the story. I feel like if we all were fluent in Japanese and we all read it, I think we'd be able to pick like tons more stuff out. Just the weakness of the translation, I guess. I feel like there was a nuance that we missed somewhere that would make this easier to understand. It, it would make sense to me if I was reading it in Japanese and like something about the woman, the, the old woman's testimony was like, oh, she's lying because, you know, Kyoto is like, 
not around or I don't know, something fake about her, her testimony. But as far as I can tell, she was telling the truth and the Buddhist monk was telling the truth. The woodcutter, yes, he lied and uh, the bounty hunter lied. Like I almost wish that, that I knew that the old woman lied because uh, that would mean that this would be a story about like Buddhist monks never lie or whatever. So that's the, uh, the takeaway. I don't, I don't know when i was reading it i always figured that was the point of the story that is all about deception and everyone everyone is lying and, and the reasons why people are lying is unclear and i'm sure there's times where in real life a cop is trying to solve a mystery or something and he's getting multiple accounts that are all contradicting each other and then it doesn't line up there's cold cases that i'm sure that's the exact problem is like none of this information is lining up and i think that was kind of the point the whole time sometimes multiple perspectives and points of views they definitely don't line up or like you said multiple people are lying i never really thought about the translation being off i just figured that was the intent of the story that is interesting because i'm now looking at some analysis of it and there's specific things like the woodcutter mentions that takahiro is wearing a hat called a sabi iboshi and that is specifically a, a style of hat from kyoto and then later on in the account of the old woman she says that the samurai was not from kyoto and the author draws significance to it because the police inspector specifically asked her was he from kyoto and she says he wasn't and that's like that's one thing that's so specific right because it's mm -hmm. like if you knew those words and you knew the cultural significance of it you would probably put that together but it basically draws to attention that the mother was also lying or the woodcutter or the woodcutter was, was lying possibly but yeah. like what i think is happening is that the author basically had them all lie. Woodcutter lied about the dagger, probably, because he probably stole it. The Buddhist monk lied about the arrows. The mother lied about him being from Kyoto. And then the eyewitness testimonies are all over the place in terms of their lies. So I think that's basically what it's supposed to be, is that you're going to get different versions of this story and none of them are going to be true, or at least aspects of them are not going to be true at all. And, uh, you know, I think he just wrote it to piss everyone off. <laughs> um. It was just such a confusing novel. And I went in thinking like, okay, so I'm trying to piece together this narrative. But in the end, I'm just as lost as I was starting out. All we know is that there's a dead samurai uh, and the bandit has been captured. But there's still these ulterior motives there, these side stories that don't add up it just kind of made me mad i was like okay but like i want to get to the bottom of this i want to know why they're all lying what do they have to hide and you, like yeah if everybody lies then the truth gets lost i don't know well actually i did i did know about the whole uh kyoto and uh like oh I, you I, did I, yeah I, I was gonna mention it but yeah i just forgot okay <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you'd have to know quite a bit because obviously like modern Japanese people probably wouldn't know that. Like unless, I guess, I guess I don't have the tacit knowledge. I'm sure if I like talk to anybody in Japan, they'd be like, yeah, I know all about that. What are you talking about? I'd imagine it would be the same thing as if you're like, yeah, I saw this man. He was wearing a kilt he, and he walked <laughs> off that way. And then the next account is like, my son wasn't from Scotland. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think we might even be taking it too much. He's probably just like walking through Kyoto with his wife. And he's like, hey, I should just get a new hat while I'm here. 
And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was it was a hat that said "I love Kyoto" on it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but the like, it becomes like a major part of the story. Like, uh, yeah, well, you know, he he was not from Kyoto. That hat was uh, like people are like freaking out about it. But he's. Uh, if I was making a film, if I was remaking that, I would have a short scene where he's like walking through Kyoto to be like, yeah, I should pick up a hat here. And uh, yeah. it's just like a, a souvenir stand. <laughs> Good job. We're going to talk about the movie now. Yes. So the plot of Rashomon follows in a grove pretty closely. It should be noted the title of Rashomon comes from another short story also written by Ryunosuke Akaragawa. Um, called Rashomon, um, as well as the setting of where most of the movie takes place is also borrowed from that short story. So the story starts with the priest and the woodcutter, and they are sitting under the Rashomon city gate in Kyoto. And they're sitting under this gate to stay dry during this rainfall. A commoner, peasant type person joins them and they start to tell him the story the man is kind of a cynic who doesn't really um believe in the goodness of humanity the priest obviously has deep faith in the goodness of people so the woodcutter claims that he finds the body of a murdered samurai three days earlier we we then go into the woodcutter and the priest recounting the story. We go into kind of the setting of the short story, which is these testimonies being given to a high council that we never see as viewers. All of the testimonies are given directly to the camera, framing it in a way where the audience kind of becomes the high council. So it opens with the woodcutter's story that he found the samurai's body in the woods. He also found the woman's hat and the cap that belonged to the samurai. He finds the body and uh, and then runs in a panic to notify the authorities. The priest also recounts that he saw both the samurai and his wife traveling on the road the day before the murder happened. They were called to testify in the court um, where they witness the rest of the witnesses telling their story. So the first story is told from Tajumaru's perspective, the bandit. In the movie, he's portrayed as a notorious outlaw and that he was captured by this bounty hunter, similar to the story. In the bandit story, again, it follows a short story pretty closely that he tricks the samurai to be separated from his wife to look at this treasure that he plans to sell him. He overpowers the samurai, ties him to a tree, and then brings his wife to him. The wife, again, tries to kill the bandit. The bandit overpowers her and rapes her, and then tries to flee the scene, but then the wife stops him and asks him to kill her husband or to kill himself. Again, saying that she cannot bear with two men living, knowing her shame. She asks the bandit to duel her husband and that she will then leave with whoever wins the duel. Tajumaru says that he then had an extremely long duel with this samurai and that he defeated him. And after the fight, he turns to see the woman has already ran away. At the end of his story, the court asks him about the dagger that belonged to the samurai's wife. He says that in his confusion, he forgot all about it and that it was probably a very valuable dagger and he regrets leaving it behind. We then get into the story from the perspective of the wife. She says that Tajmar raped her and then ran away. Uh, again, following the story pretty closely, she begs her husband to forgive her 
but he again regards her with this cold expression. She unties him and begs him to kill her so that she can then be at peace. So in this, it's slightly different from the short story. She begs him to kill her first, but he continues to regard her with a cold expression. His expression is so disturbing to her. We're led to believe that she kills him and then faints. Again, going back to the short story, she does try to kill herself again, but fails. We then go back to the samurai story, which is again told through a spirit medium. This again follows the events of the short story pretty closely. The samurai claims that after raping his wife, Tojimaru asks his wife to go with him. His wife accepts, but asks Tojimaru to kill her husband so that she would not feel the guilt of leaving him. Tojimaru is shocked by this and grabs his wife and gives the samurai a choice of either letting the woman go or killing her. The woman then runs away and Tojimaru frees the samurai and then runs away from the scene. The samurai then kills himself using his wife's dagger. And again, similar to the short story, as he's beginning to die, he feels someone remove the dagger from his chest. After these eyewitness testimonies, we go back to the setting of the Rashomon Gate, where the woodcutter says to the commoner that all three of these stories were falsehoods. He then confesses that he witnessed the rape and murder firsthand, but that he declined the opportunity to testify at the trial because he did not want to get involved. According to the woodcutter's new story, Tajimaru begged the samurai's wife to marry him, but the woman instead freed her husband. The husband was initially unwilling to fight Tajimaru, saying that he would not risk his life for a spoiled woman. The woman then criticizes both him and Tajimaru, saying that they were not real men and that a real man would fight for a woman's love. She urges the men to fight one another and then hides her face in fear after they raised their swords. The men were also visibly fearful as they started fighting. In this version of the woodcutter's story, the resulting duel was far more pitiful and clumsy as they flail their swords wildly. Tajumaru eventually wins through a stroke of luck. After some hesitation, he kills the samurai and the woman flees the scene. Tajumaru is not able to catch her but he takes the samurai sword and leaves the scene limping. In the film's climax, at the Rashomon Gate, the woodcutter, the priest, and the commoner are interrupted from their discussion by the sound of a crying baby. They find the baby abandoned in the basket, and the commoner takes a kimono and an amulet that has been left for the baby. The woodcutter is furious and reproaches the commoner for stealing from this abandoned baby, but the commoner chastises him. Having deduced that the reason that the woodcutter would not speak up at the trial was because he was the person who stole the dagger from the scene of the crime. The commoner mocks the woodcutter as a bandit, calling another person a bandit. The commoner leaves Rashomon, claiming that all men are motivated by self-interest. These deceptions and lies have shaken the priest's faith in humanity, but he claims it is finally restored when the woodcutter reaches for the baby in the priest's arm. The priest is initially suspicious, but the woodcutter explains that he intends to take care of the baby along with his own six children. This revelation recasts the woodcutter's story and the theft of the dagger. The priest gives the baby to the woodcutter, saying that the woodcutter has given him a reason to continue having hope in humanity. The film closes with the woodcutter walking home with the baby. The rain has stopped and the clouds have opened, revealing the sun in contrast to the beginning where it was overcast. Let's get into the movie. I think it uh, made the story more complicated. 
I, initially, I was pretty frustrated because after we went through the samurai story being told through the medium, it just kept going. And I was like, wait, what's going on? Why is there more accounts of this? And then, and then, yeah. And then sure enough, the woodcutter reveals that he was lying and that he has this other version of the story to tell. And I was like, what is happening? It was a confusing story for me to wrap my head around. Again, I, I, as I was watching the movie, I had the short story opened and I was collating what they were saying to see if it matched up with the story as it went along. Uh, my initial thoughts were it was confusing. But again, like any, like any Kurosawa movie, very beautiful and very great to look at. Um, but uh, but yeah, what did everyone else think? It's, it's confusing, but I, I also read once again that was Kurosawa's intent. I think actors had approached him when they were filming it, and they were like, "All right, like who what who did it?" And then he and he's like, mm, "I'm not going to tell you. No one's supposed to know. That's not the point. The, the point is this whole um, ambiguity, and no one can be trusted. No one's a reliable narrator at this point. Keeping it that way, and um, yeah, like you said, it's Kurosawa, so you can't." It's a beautiful looking movie. Structure, framing, everything about it is like incredibly beautiful to look at, uh, even though it's just in black and white. It's a beautiful looking movie. But yeah, like overall, I, I really did enjoy the movie. I, I think I liked the movie more than the book. Like you said, like that maybe is like a little bit frustrating that you'd still have not a clear idea. But once again, I, I just think that's just the nature of it and that's what it's supposed to be. Um, I really enjoyed the movie. I actually thought it complicated things lesser because we had a finite kind of this woodcutter who witnessed the entire story and didn't get involved because he took the dagger and didn't want to get in trouble. I felt like Akira Kurosawa sat down like us and deduced every possible outcome for the story and then picked and chose like what we did, like these different motives, and then made that into the ending of it. Yeah, beautifully shot. I'm amazed that he took, I think this is like a seven page or nine page long short story, and he turned it into an hour and 30 minute long movie. So I'm really impressed with that. I actually found it a little bit more easier to watch, like because when I'm reading the short story, I had to go back and rewatch it, whereas I watched the movie in its entirety. And knowing from the source material, it, it, it was explained to me better. But I do like the whole woodcutter story because for me it was what the woodcutter and the priest are disturbed about is why the motives are misled. Why would they lie when he knows the story? So it's him going through this trial and watching these different stories play out. And that's what I took away from it. this. And then he's confronted with his own motives, which is that he stole this dagger. Everything that Jason just said is 100%. I actually, uh, when I watched it, I'm like, oh, this is so much better. The, not that the book was terrible. I just... Uh, I just found that I got a lot more out of the, and I, and I 100% agree. I think Kurosawa just at the end of it, he was like, well, this is probably the story. So I'm just going to turn the woodcutter into the, like the hero of the story or something. I don't know. And then like, there's like a moment where like, hey, there's a baby here. Like it's just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, this, this like additional moral that he throws in, this additional like lesson that he's trying to teach us to, uh, about having faith in humanity i think it's interesting because it does kind of frame it in a way where the woodcutter story now becomes the definitive version of it and at this point when the woodcutter starts telling his story and the movie's starting to wrap up i think you could still doubt it if you wanted to there is still a certain degree of ambiguity there where you could still doubt the woodcutter story and be like he could still be telling a lie because he already lied once. But there's also the additional ending where he is now taking this baby from this priest and he is now being entrusted to look after this child. And the priest says that it is this event that 
rekindles his hope in humanity. So I think at the very end of the movie, if you still doubt the woodcutter, if you still think the woodcutter might be lying, it's framed almost in a way where if you now doubt this, then you then you have lost your faith in humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Because like this is the last bastion. Is this man telling the truth? And is this man fit to look after this child? And do you still have faith in this man? And I think that's kind of brilliant. It takes the themes of deception and lies that exist in the short story, and it gives it this cleaner sense of morality of like, all of these people could be lying, but out of all of this, how do you find faith in humanity? And this movie kind of gives you that opportunity to still have some faith in humanity at the end of it. So... Like every once in a while, a movie comes around that's like simple, but amazing. And I feel like this movie is that, right? Because there's three settings, I think, unless I'm misremembering. There's the courtyard, mm-hmm. there's the, uh, the the forest, and then there's the uh, ruined temple or gateway or whatever it was. The Rashman, yeah. Yeah, that's where the three show up. That's the entirety. When thinking about that, that makes it so that it was wholly carried by the acting. If you had like a, you know, Keanu Reeves and Bram Stoker's Dracula situation, like the movie would suck. Sorry, Keanu, but that's just, that's it. That, that, that's, <laughs> if there was a bad, if there was bad acting anywhere, it would have ruined the entire movie. Like everybody had to light it up and everybody did. And for me, like I am not a Kurosawa person. I've only watched uh, one of their film of his and that we've talked about earlier. And I'm only getting like uh, learning these actors and stuff like that. But they they all did an excellent job. They carried the film, a simple film with a low budget that, that could have been not good, turned it into a turned it into an epic. And then a baby shows up and you're like, what the hell? Like <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's so much to talk about here. And I think like we talked about the actual story for so long when we were talking about the short story that like I so want to talk about just the filmmaking in this movie because it's astounding. Like it's it's absolutely incredible what they achieved with it. And like Doug said, it's just three settings, a very limited cast. And they they completely light it up. And the cinematography is like the other part of this, right? Like, you know, I am grateful to have access to the Criterion Collection and um, and the special features on there. There's an interview with the cinematographer, Kazuo Miyagawa, who worked on this film and worked on a bunch of other Kurosawa films. Just listening to how he shot this film, it's incredible. It's so enlightening because um, it, it was so simplistic but artistic at the same time one of the things he talks about was how they used lighting in the film because they were shooting it with natural lighting but they were also shooting it in a forest so they had to figure out a way to get these shadows in there as well as light their subjects and one of the things that they did was they just used a mirror not even like a reflective bounce film which is typically used in in exterior shots Uh, They used a straight up mirror that he borrowed from the costume department because it just created such a harsher sense of light. And if you watch the movie, there's these beautiful scenes where you can see like silhouettes of light, like framing these actors. And it's gorgeous. It's, It's just so sharp because it's a black and white film, but it stands out so much. And on top of that, 
when he was using the mirror, he would find that like it was now harder to get shadows on them. And so what he would do is he would cut branches off and he would tape it to the front of the mirror so that the light was now reflecting off the mirror, but th- still casting the shadow of these branches. There's this particular shot where the bandit is waking up and he sees the woman for the first time and you're seeing these leaves on his face and you and there's a, a specific plot detail that this ties into is that he's talking about this wind that blows the veil off of her face and that's when he first sees her and they convey that through the shot you know you see the wind before he mentions it and you see the wind because of the way that the branches are shaking across his face and that was just like some dude holding branches in front of his face and just shaking it you know as they were bouncing the light off of a mirror and i think that's just beautiful filmmaking like that's just incredible cinematography to conceive that and to execute it so well kind of humbling because you have to go in remembering this is black and white like real film you're so used to like nowadays with just digital cameras and stuff like that but knowing what they could do back then with what they had i'm still i I remember watching the opening the film where he's walking through the the reeds the woodcutter i'm like wow this you know it's kind of a long shot but i just was got really Mm -hmm. enthralled by it yeah that was another thing that they talked about was that tracking shot specifically was how they follow that woodcutter through it because it's an incredible shot but it's just one rail that the camera operator was sitting on but they made it go on for so long because as they were tracking him they had the woodcutter cross the rail so they kind of like started from behind him ended up facing him and then just kept going and followed him into the woods and it starts off as a wide shot comes in on a close-up and then just keeps going just just stellar cinematography to pull that off he just i don't even know how to put it into words there's a whole youtube video by a youtube channel called every frame of painting i think it's called and Mm -hmm. they talk about how great he is with his cinematography and the lighting and like you said it's all black and white the technology they had in 1950 like they didn't have viewfinders like we have they didn't have monitors to watch it they had to shoot it and then look at it when they were producing it like the fact that they were able to get it right is incredible like he's an incredible filmmaker and that's the main reason why i picked in a grove because when i saw it on our list of movies i was like i want to watch more kira kurosawa movies and i didn't even know that was based on a book so or a story i was really excited to check out another you know to speak a little bit about rashomon the gate and and what it means i read a few more of rinosuke akaragawa's uh, stories and i did read the story titled Rashomon, which is a completely different story as this one, but it has the same setting. Like it takes place at a Rashomon gate and there's a bit of historical context as to what Rashomon was. And basically it was this real gate that existed as an entrance to the city of Kyoto. And it was this big, very impressive structure, kind of like what it looks like in the movie, but Somewhere around the 17th century, it fell into disrepair and it just kind of became this destroyed looking building that you see in the movie. And it also has kind of a negative connotation associated with it because it fell into such disrepair that it was frequented by bandits and thieves and stuff like that. And that a lot of people actually abandoned their dead at this gate. So it has this like disrepute attached to it. And it also probably explains why there was a baby left there it was already this place of kind of disrepute and people abandoned you know they're dead and i guess they're newborn children there as well but yeah that kind of explains the setting a little bit more 
Yeah, I didn't pick any of that up. <laughs> like, I I just love that. I, I just love the the setting. Like I as I was watching it, I'm just like, dude, this is such a beautiful like destroyed area. Yeah, the the setting of the movie is absolutely gorgeous. If no one's seen Rashomon, absolutely go watch it. But just look it up. Like just look at the screenshots. It's an absolutely gorgeous film, and the setting is is incredible. And the incessant rain that Kurosawa uses in all of his movies. But in this movie specifically, you know, again, I was watching an interview with him and just the sheer amount of water that he had to use to make it look that way because rain doesn't show up well in black and white films. So he said that, like, even if you're standing under a perfect, you know, shower, you're not going to see it on film. So they literally just had to drench the place with fire hoses in order for it to look like rain. And it's gorgeous. Another interesting fact, I'd never heard the term before, but apparently it's a pretty commonly used term. I think, I guess maybe in film, but I think also with like real investigation is called the the Rashomon effect. And it essentially is multiple perspectives being told and them not all lining up. I found that really interesting. I didn't realize that that was the case. In fact, it's funny that that term comes from the movie and not from like the in the grove effect or whatever yeah, seeing that in the exactly. grove was the one that yeah. used it first it's obviously shows how much more popular in culture rashomon has become than even in the grove what it's based on and it does make me wonder if this was something that was done before you know as i was reading it i like i heard that like yeah rashomon became this this term used for this effect for retelling a story with different from different perspectives and I'm not lining up. But I was honestly like thinking about that. I was like, this had to have been done before, right? Like this can't be the first story to have this framing device, but I'm not sure. Or maybe it's just the most popular one. Like, yeah, the first one that really took off and was really popular. A little thing that I took from it, because Calvin was talking about how Rashomon Gate was this haunt for thieves and bandits. There's a story about how this place became so associated with evil that a demon an oni resided there would prey on people and eventually was chased off by a samurai the thing that kind of like stuck out for me was that a one little good thing happened there which was the woodcutter taking home the baby so i thought that it was kind of like a, a nice little like lifting of this curse you know what i mean and the priest who stands there watching that happen so like all this bad stuff that's happened there and you know they're telling the story of this murder out it attracts this evil and this one little good thing got out of there. I kind of really like that. So that only makes sense if that baby was an evil. You're right. What about the baby story? Baby was probably yeah. also lying. <laughs> the baby baby yeah. just yeah. pipes up and is like, I killed a samurai. Yeah. Yeah. You look down at the baby and he's holding a, a bloodied katana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was like the devil's child and they were like getting rid of it because this movie leads directly into the omen. Like, yeah. Stop stop ruining this lighthearted <laughs> moment for me. We all think it's happy he's bringing home a, a, a demon baby. <laughs> if the uh, um the woodcutter story is the the true story at the end of it, I also want to point out how clumsy that fight scene was. It's like what samurai is this? It's Dude, true, this- but like I think that's I think that's kind of the point, right? The woodcutter story is one that's so it does kind of become the definitive version of this because it's so free of glamour or hubris from the two uh, competing fighters. Yeah. And so it does become this like really clumsy and ugly and gritty kind of fight because it's like they didn't even want to fight, you know? 
they were just kind of like thrown into it by this woman again like <laughs> the woman becomes you know you never see her in this light but in the woodcutter's story she becomes this like cunning and manipulative person and that's one that's completely outside of the framing of the story and it reframes both of those characters it reframes the samurai and the bandit in this like kind of cowardly light ultimately like it does become the definitive version of the story because you kind of have to trust in the woodcutter in order for you to trust in humanity i think mm-hmm. that's kind of how they frame it so we'll wrap up on the movie and with that uh let's get into my favorite segment where we recast this movie with the only actors fit to play any movie former wwe superstars or current wwe superstars oscar or Kyrie zane as the uh the samurai's <laughs> wife i suppose if we were remaking rashomon i would say oscar because there's a certain level of craziness that you need to dial into for that last scene and there's there's no one better than asuka to do that shinsuke nakamura as the bandits not not hot like, enough you need to get someone super hot to play to play that role <laughs> yeah but that person doesn't exist <laughs> like 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 he's literally like the embodiment of like handsome <laughs> no, uh, you know, there's actually a lot of Japanese wrestlers. Like, this is probably the one film where you could actually fill it with professional wrestlers, and it would actually be still an okay film. Not, not just WWE though. I think, I think there aren't enough WWE wrestlers. I think is what we're saying. You'd, ha- you'd have to go to the New Japan Wrestling or, yeah, or AEW or right, something. Right. Let's see, uh, Nakamura as the Bandit. Yokozuna as uh, the samurai. A Samoan wrestler, <laughs> Yokozuna. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Fuji as a. Uh, got to be in there. <laughs> and, Honestly, uh, Mr. Fuji would be great as the woodcutter. I would, I would <laughs> buy that so hard. Uh, <laughs> what about Tajiri? Who would Tajiri play? Tajiri would be just the most awful person to play the bandit but he would <laughs> he would commit so hard to that role like you know he would <laughs> um, yeah nope kind of sucks not enough japanese wrestlers in current wwe i guess so i'm gonna do a quick new segment that i just created where we talk about other stuff that we've been reading or watching that we want to just talk about for a second and recommend it if possible doug what uh, what else have you been reading or watching or playing. I've been reading like tons of um, academic articles just because I'm in school. Cool, man. Anyone stand out that you want to recommend? Lawrence DeGarris was a professional wrestler, and he uh, he wrote an article on the uh, on the ethnography of an ethnographer, and it was actually a pretty kick-ass. So I can't tell if you're serious or not. Yeah, he was a professional wrestler, and and he he was trying to say that the only way you could learn professional wrestling is if you wrestle. You can watch it. But you have to like be in the ring and feeling like the handshakes and doing all that other stuff. He was talking about a weakness of ethnography. I was that's honestly true. I I, I love that academic article. I, I also have been reading a lot. There's a guy named Charles Wheeland. He's an economist from the United States, a one-time Democratic Illinois Senate guy. Mm-hmm. But he wrote Naked Statistics, Naked Economics, Naked Money, and Ten and a Half Things That That Have Never Been Said in a Commencement Speech. And all four of those books I've read in the past like month, 
beautiful. They're all amazing. I read Naked Statistics and I had to read like his other books. That's how good it was. So Wow. Some sexy, sexy economics, huh? It's good. It's it's not as boring as you think. It, it, he really like takes like that really boring subject and really makes really makes it speak. So so check it out. Charles Whelan, just Google his name. Anything he's written is amazing. Um, Ashton? Uh, I've been watching a lot of TV and movies. Our friend, uh, a mutual friend of all of ours is Dwight. He's lent me like a whole bunch of movies to watch. And I've been getting on to um, John Singleton. Um, oh, okay. So I really, really enjoyed Boys in the Hood more than I thought I would. I thought that was a really good movie. Totally different movie than I expected, and I really enjoyed it. So I ended up watching a movie called Baby Boy, starring Tyrese Gibson and uh, Snoop Dogg. (laughs) But it was made by John Singleton, and I watched that. It wasn't quite as good as Boys in the Hood, but it was pretty good. I actually just started earlier this week the stand mini series that just oh, okay. came out at the end of the year i think the stand is a better like the stand the book is still like the best version to watch because i also watched the old mini series from the 90s like a few months ago but yeah other than that like mostly just like documentaries i, I watched framing britney i watched uh the last blockbuster so was, i think those are all pretty cool documentaries to watch as well see the, the thing about boys in the hood as well there's so many jokes it was one of those movies that you if you grew up on a reserve you probably saw but everybody joked about it. And so now I can't, it's like other movies that we've ruined. I can't watch that film without cracking up. Like it's the funny, like, like it's like Anchorman. Uh, but that being said, if you remove all that stuff, if you remove all the, uh, the melodramatic and the, the stuff that makes me laugh, it's actually like a really good film. It totally exceeded my expectations. What I expected was kind of like a Hollywood, very glorification of like gangster life. And uh, I ended up, being like oh this has got like a lot of heart and a lot of like thought and emotion to it that way more than i expected from it and i was really happy with what i ended up uh, seeing and that's now so now i'm kind of like looking for john singleton movies now to check them out so Uh, jesse are you checking anything out lately yeah so i sent you a picture doug i went through my dvd collection which was in an old trunk and i pulled out one of my favorite miniseries it was a site when sci-fi channel did them and it's uh the lost room I'm not going to spoil too much about it in case you wanted to watch it or borrow it, but essentially an event happens in a hotel room that causes these objects to appear. And that like, I'm not going to go too much further into it, but I remember watching this as a kid and being obsessed with it. And I had to go to Walmart and find it, but yeah, I actually just checked it out again. It's a solid little mini series. It almost feels like a Stephen King mini series without certain plot elements. Stephen King puts in there, but um, yeah, it's one of Kevin Pollock's uh, best movies. Seems like a deep cut. Yeah, this is a deep cut. Every time, every time you pull out a deep cut, though, they wind up being the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Between fucking communion and the Mothman prophecies, I have honestly That's just also like, not Doug's trusted fault. you anymore. Moth- okay, look, <laughs> Doug jumped down that uh, Mothman hype as well, so you can't put that on me. I take blame for communion, just because I know how much it would irk you, but. No, um, another good one actually, because I do got a bunch here. Uh, this is another really good uh, Panic, Panic Room with Jodie with Jody Foster and uh, Forrest Whitaker. This is an amazing movie. Again, check that out. Mm-hmm. I think most people watch Panic Room. It's probably it's probably David Fincher's most underrated movie though. Uh, yeah. What have I been reading? I've been reading a few things. I just finished uh, The Strain uh, oh. by Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan. Um, oh. 
That's a vampire yeah. one, right? Yeah, and it you know, a lot of people as I was getting into it, I checked out some of the reviews and a lot of people are really critical of it because they think it's like pretty derivative and pretty like cliched as a horror story but honestly i'm totally down for like just a a run-of-the-mill kind of horror story takes place in new york city it almost feels like if he got to make mimic the way he wanted to make mimic Mm. it's pretty kick-ass in that way like it features a lot of the similar things like the the lead characters a cdc um investigator and and frames vampirism as a virus so it's super fun to read during covid yeah it it was i think like pretty enjoyable and like i know there's sequels and stuff so i probably get into those as well also it was an audiobook and it was narrated by ron perlman and like what else do you need to sell it just super super gruff ron perlman yeah (laughs) narrating this book um what book did you pick calvin um yeah so our next for page and screen is going to be captain america winter soldier um the comic book written by ed brubaker and uh we will of course be watching the uh the mcu film captain america the winter soldier directed by the russo brothers yeah i'm super excited i've obviously watched the movie many times um i've never read the comic book but i really like ed brubaker and i've also started watching falcon and winter soldier on disney plus so i'm very much in the mood for some more marvel content and yeah um, and yeah i'm looking forward to this one uh, strangely enough i just finished uh the first captain america movie today and so i'll probably check out winter soldier i was going to check it out anyways so perfect yeah um anyways that wraps up page and screen everyone thank you so much for tuning in and uh we'll see you on the next one i want to give a special thanks as always to me and my friend for creating all the music you hear on the show you can check out more of their music by visiting me and my friend.bandcamp.com if you like this show you should probably go ahead and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all those places that you get your podcasts. And if you really like us, leave us a review and a rating. You can also connect with us on social media. We are at Page and Screen 1 on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Search Page and Screen on YouTube and you can watch a video version of the show. We post regular updates of all the books we read and the movies we watch on all of our social media channels, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on all of them. We're not the only ones who can offer our unwarranted opinions, so chime in and join the conversation. And finally, make sure you spread the word about this show. If you know book nerds or film geeks in your life, please pass it on to them. We would love to reach new people. Maybe you know someone who pretends to be a spirit medium. See what they think of our opinions. Until the next page and screen, thank you for listening.